Bring spring color inside this season with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the Bare exclusive color Arrowhead Lake. Or a splash of Amazon jungle to your living room. Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass. Whatever your inspiration, start your spring with durable colors that last all season with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. What does it mean to live a life that is worth living? Well, fortunately, there's a book about it, Life Worth Living, A Guide to What Matters Most by three Yale professors and teachers who teach an extremely popular course at Yale about life called Life Worth Living. Miroslav Volf, Matthew Kroesman, and Ryan McNally-Lenz. Miroslav came on the podcast to talk about his new book. I have to say, this book really moved me. There were so many like excellent stories and so much wisdom about how to live a life worth living. And it really changed my opinion about several things. And I had a lot of questions for Miroslav. So here they are. Here's Miroslav. I'm grateful he came on the podcast. The book is Life Worth Living and lifeworthlivingbook.com where you could also download a discussion guide about the book. Also throughout the book, there's questions you can ask yourself to challenge you to think about what is a life worth living for you. So anyway, here's Miroslav, and we're talking about a life worth living. I highly recommend it. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Miroslav Wolf, thank you for coming on the podcast, and thank you for writing this book. What got you into doing this course? Yeah, initially what got me into it is kind of realization triggered by a book by a colleague of mine, uh, Tony Cronman, titled Education's End on Why American Colleges and Universities Have Given Up on the Meaning of Life. And he analyzes kind of development of higher education, starting with Harvard in the United States, above all, starting with Harvard and how the question of the meaning of life what kind of life is truly worth uh, living, was at the heart of uh, university education. And even so, when uh, those universities started secularizing and became uh, more more secular until about 70s, that's his argument. I'm not always persuaded by kind of details of the argument, but main point about marginalization of the question seems to me right, which meant then that instrumental reason, explanatory reason started dominating a university education and the kind of purposes of life, meaning of life become increasingly marginalized. Can I ask what you mean by explanatory reasons? I mean, uh, that it's your explanation of the phenomena of the nature of reality in various domains 
And the other, I say instrumental reason, because basically I put it this way, it helps you get from whatever point A you are to whatever point B you want to get. Can you give an example of how is that different from questioning what is the meaning of life? Or what, what is a life worth living? Well, I, I think that what is a life worth living or meaning of life is a question about purpose, a question about should. So I, I think the central issue uh, for me is that how do I answer the question, what kind of life is worthy of my humanity? What kind of life is worth living? Not what I want to live, but what kind of life I should live. How do I answer this should question? And I don't think the should question can be answered by appealing either to some kind of uh, inner depth of the self, uh, something like authenticity, my own individual character, my own dreams, and my own deepest uh, desires. And I don't think it can be either answered satisfactorily by looking at uh, kind of sciences. You can get advice from sciences in terms of what kinds of means would be appropriate to whatever ends you want to achieve. But the ends question, what I should, what kind of life I should live, that seems to me untouched by these or unaddressed by, by these dominant ways in which we privately think about our lives and in which we sometimes publicly think about them as in universities. Well, maybe we can use this. You have a lot of different examples in the book, and it seems like each example, the answer to how to find meaning in your life or how to live a, a, a life worth living changes depending on the perspective of the story you're telling, whether it's Buddha or Abraham Lincoln or Martin Luther King or Jesus or James Baldwin. And in a lot of the perspective, some of it, the perspective is from an individual point of view. Some of it is from a societal point of view. Maybe we could break down how did... Abraham Lincoln or Martin Luther King differ from Buddha, say, in their perspective? Because both had very, you could say all those people had lives worth living, but very different answers to the question, what is a life worth living? Yeah, they, they've given a, a, a kind of a different accounts of what, what it means to life worth living. I mean, as I think, for instance, let's compare Buddha and Martin Luther King. It seems to me that for Martin Luther King, the question of kind of what we call circumstances of our lives, that is to say, what kind of setting is appropriate to a life, what kind of set of relationships is appropriate to a life that is truly worth living, a world that is truly worth aspiring. That question was at the center of Martin Luther King's endeavor. Um, attempt to reach beloved community, wider extent to situate that beloved community in a certain way in which we go about creating goods in life in terms of economic justice, in terms of political sets of uh, relationship. I think those were at the margins of the concern of the Buddha. Buddha was interested in kind of internal, uh, more about internal space and, and how the self situates itself within the world. And what we do in this course is we, uh, we basically approach the vision of the good life by saying that the good life or life worthy of our humanity has these three mutually related dimensions. One dimension is that of my agency. The other dimension is that of the setting in which I am, the circumstances. And the third dimension is, uh, is that of emotions, of affect. How do these three 
figure in each of the vision of life that we analyze? That's, that's a really interesting question that we pursue. So let me ask about those three things. So the first one was agency, meaning perhaps if that's the only thing you focus on, then a life where I have as much individual choice on my actions as possible is one worth living. Yes, and it would be something, uh, your actions is what you really have under control. Um, a stoic might say your circumstances really cannot determine what kind of life is worthy to be lived because circumstances will, will change and you have to have that kind of stability of core to yourself. Therefore, you concentrate on your agency. And if emotions come, they will be a kind of a result of proper orientation uh, in terms of agency in life, uh, but they're not worthy of pursuit uh, in and of themselves. Right, and as Stoics would point out, both Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius were, let's say, equally great Stoics in terms of understanding that regardless of the circumstances, they had you know, choice of their mood and virtue in their lives. And Epictetus, of course, born a slave, Marcus Aurelius, an emperor and yet equally were able to pursue agency, hence stoicism. And so the next thing was you discuss how the setting could determine how you live a worthy life. And, and you could argue Martin Luther King, his setting was a world with not the civil rights he wanted. So he pursued a life where he wanted to change that to create greater civil rights. Yeah, and, and behind that lies the question that, uh, of course, it's important to have a right set of agency, but you can be also in a significant way constrained uh, as an agent in the world. And that constraint represents uh, a modes of injustice that you, that you suffer. Um, and you have to then construe a kind of a world in which... Um, one is able truly to flourish. It's almost like you think of yourself as a plant and not every soil will be appropriate, not every environment will be appropriate for you to grow. And the vision there is that actually, as he put it uh, himself, that actually I cannot flourish truly myself until everyone else in the world flourishes. And so that flourishing of all, flourishing of even entire environment, though that was not on the forefront of his attention, is essential for each person to be really living a life as they are called to, as is worthy of their, their humanity. And in that sense, um, though certain way of accessing a life worthy of our humanity is there for us, whether we are slaves or free, we ought to aspire to more than that. And it's interesting because let's take Buddha and Martin Luther King again. Buddha is not trying to change the world. He, like, as you mentioned, he's trying to live as an example of how one could uplift one's personal, individual sort of inner space. And, and Martin Luther King, of course, is trying to change the world. And both probably equally and positively affected tens or even hundreds of millions of people in their lifetimes and after. And yet both very different. Buddha could have gone out and been a king and chose not to be, not to change the external world, but in doing so, attracted people to his vision. Martin Luther King didn't sit for his entire life in a grove and, and attract people to him, but he went out there in the world to affect change. It's hard to reconcile the two to know how to live one's life. And so where do you, where do you come down on that? I know the book doesn't have one answer to a life worth living. There's, you know, 
Pick a card <laughs> here. Pick a card, any card. Well, except except that I wouldn't quite put it. Pick a card on any card. I, I think the first. Yeah, that might be a better uh, way to put it. The first part of what you said is 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 quite quite right. And what we try to do in in the book, we realize that each person is responsible for their own life. Ultimately, your life is in your own responsibility. You may ask then, well, to whom am I responsible to live it in a certain way? But still, you have to decide how you would live. But how do you decide? And what we are suggesting and what this book hopefully embodies is what we call truth-seeking conversations. What I don't think we should do is look at those sages and exemplars and then think, well, what, what kind of resonates with me? What do I like? As if these were there on the smorgasbord of life choices. And then you choose depending on how, what kind of meal you feel like eating today. I think what we want to say is that there is, there is something deeply earnest and significant Something that can be lost if we don't live our lives in the way that's worthy of our humanity. We have exemplars of folks who, who failed as humans. Now, that's very hard to hear sometimes, that you can fail not in a particular endeavor that you undertake, which we all know, which we all fail and maybe learn from our failures and so forth. But you can fail as a human being. That's a much more consequential failure. And that means that we have to take this question in the way in which I think these traditions normally did take them, namely that they articulate a truth about human existence. Now, you might say, well, all these tend to conflict. They partly overlap, but in significant ways, they, they also differ. And then what we do, we invite our students in the class that we teach and also in this book, we invite people to try to think themselves into those positions and then critically evaluate the impact on them, on others, but take them seriously as making those claims to truth rather than simply appealing to their attunement, emotional uh, fit between them and that vision that they encounter. That, that's really a good point because it could change throughout your life. Like maybe at some points you're concerned with you know, your own inner desires and rejections and cravings. And so you, you work on that because you feel working on that will, will point you in the right direction. And then other times you see injustice in the world and you, you work on that and, and you feel that becomes a life worth living. So it doesn't have to be like one set of beliefs that drive you through an entire life. And, and you, you start off with the book with searching for what is the right question mm. to ask. And, and by the way, one, one thing I really love in this book is at the end of each chapter, you have a section called Your Turn. And, you know, and there's qu exercises for the reader. Like, you know, here, here's one from chapter five. Like, uh, you ask questions like, what should we hope for? What are genuinely good circumstances? How much is enough when it comes to these circumstances? And there's no real answer to these questions. But like you said, they're enough to think about. Like some people might say, oh, I need $10 million and, you know, a certain political party to be president, <laughs> and then I'm in genuinely good circumstances. And then you could question, is that true? And, you know, and like you say in the very next question, where should we set the horizon of our hopes? That's that's a moving target for, for many people. Um, and it kind of goes back and forth between all these philosophies. But let's start with the initial thing. What is a good question to ask to, to set us on the road of finding out what is a life worth living? I think for me, the good question to set off that search is to ask, 
what do I want? Do I really want what I want? And if I really want what I want, should I want what I want? Uh, so as to come from the very surface uh, observation of our desires. And that's the mode in which we generally function. We have a desire, we satisfy a desire. An ideal case scenario would be that that's really the good life that we live, that our desires are fitting to the kind of life that we ought to, ought to live. But often we just have desires and then find ourselves, oh, wait a second, how did that get? How did I come to desire this? Is this really what I want? Am I getting what I want out of this? Uh, having this desire satisfied. And you might realize, no, 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 I, I actually, I, I'm being left unsatisfied. And then you start thinking about what is it really that I want? And then you ask, well, should I want that? What's at stake in me wanting it? And what might I lose? If I pursue that which I really want, which then takes you to this idea of what kind of life I should uh, live. And then we find it helpful to, to say, okay, uh, once you ask this question, ask yourself, what kind of agency should you pursue? What kind of uh, circumstances and what kind of uh, emotions? And as you said earlier, I fully agree with you at different stages of our lives, um, um, maybe maybe even at different times of a single day. <laughs> I might want to concentrate on one thing rather than on the other thing. But what I would try to urge is that even when we concentrate on different things, uh, whether it's circumstances or agency or emotions, um, that nonetheless we keep the, the whole of our lives together because these three uh, elements, these three aspects of life informed, uh, inform one another. And it's very important to be clear what I want in each one of those and why I want. Yeah, it's so interesting because being clear about exactly what it is you want, even if it's minutes of a day or single years of your life or whatever, and then being consistent, you know, then figuring out what actions there are and then being consistent with it. Like, I like your example of Thomas Jefferson where he writes, he wants to, in 1776, he writes, he wants to abolish slavery, but then he doesn't quite do it. And so he's not quite consistent in his actions. And, and, and so that's interesting. Like clearly, did, did, can you say Thomas Jefferson lived a life worth living? Because in some, in many ways he did, but then there's this, as he even labeled it, it's just an evil thing. Yeah. Slavery. Yeah, I, I think that's that's right. And most of us find, our, find ourselves uh, in that kind of uh, situation where in some domains of our lives, we, we we live a life that is worthy of of our humanity, at least the way we understand it. And that's really a wonderful, wonderful thing. Uh, but in other domains, we don't. And I think it's very, very important to... Um, to realize that it's not, for us, it was very important as academics in particular, it was very important to realize it's not enough just to have a clear vision of what the truly uh, good life is. You have to translate that vision in daily actions, and you not only have to translate it in daily actions, it has to become a, a kind of a habit, your second nature. Then we are at our best, right? Then it's not a life 
good life, life worthy of our humanity, is not simply a matter of striving and failing. It's also a matter of a kind of slipping on to a, a very comfortable shoes and running, uh, without having sense that it's uh, that, that it's a, that I'm at odds. My feet are at odds with what they are wearing, uh, and that's really the goal uh, in this whole progression from <clears throat> discerning to kind of uh, identifying with what one discerns to then translating what one discerns in action and to making out of actions kinds of habits so that I can fully live identified with the vision of life that I have embraced. Yeah, and and I guess also giving yourself permission for that vision to change uh, so that, you know, like take, Buddha is such a fascinating example. It's a very complex, it's much more complex emotionally when you look at the Buddha story. Like when he was a prince and he had everything, he, he didn't quite feel fulfilled when he met the monk who seemed very satisfied. But in order to make the change from prince to Buddha, he basically had to abandon his child on the day his yeah. child was born. <laughs> and of course, he goes back for that child later, and that's a beautiful story as well. But you see, there's a very, it's, it's almost inconsistent with goodness, the way he leaves his child to, to seek his own personal salvation. And again, it's complex because that personal salvation then became a religion for hundreds of millions of people. It's a very complex story, and I don't really know what to make of it, because when you try, when you really attempt to be without craving, does that leave to, that, does that lead, like if Martin Luther King had decided to live a life like that, maybe he would never have pursued, you know, rights for everybody. Yeah. You know, and, and vice versa, if Buddha had tried to affect change in his kingdom, maybe he not would have been, maybe he not would have been an inspiration for hundreds of millions of people later. Uh, and he would have had a very different vision of a good life. So I think the one telling thing about the Buddha is when he thinks, um, uh, if he's renounced his wealth, at least his son should get that uh, that wealth. And he doesn't, Buddha doesn't think in that, that way, because he thinks if he leaves him wealth, that's going to be an impediment uh, for him, right? That's going to prevent him to reach the, to, uh, from reaching the kind of life that is truly worth living. Now, you can uh, obviously um, think, well, this seems like uh, it's a crazy, crazy idea. But nonetheless, that, that's at the very heart of the Buddhist vision of life. Just like, for instance, I mean, very interesting, and we have also an example, example of that in the, uh, in the book, when, you, when we discuss kinds of emotions that one ought to have. It seems like, oh, it would be just natural. We have emotions, they feel good, which is just pursue those emotions. And generally we think, okay, pleasure is very good, pleasurable emotions. And yet, uh, you know, the different traditions have thought differently about it, and it's worth stopping and thinking. Uh, and then the, the question was, what, what, uh, what is it that uh, a Buddhist, a follower of, 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 of the teaching of the Buddha, should actually feel? And it's not so much a pleasure, and it's not so much kind of exhilaration of joy or something like that. It's something much more subtle. Uh, a kind of serenity in life that is unperturbed by circumstances that come uh, one's way or sometimes by the comforts of our bodies as well. And that seemed to me really worth thinking about and kind of aligning our lives uh, to find kind of emotional way 
uh, to live that is sustainable over, over periods of time. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever? So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire.
Why, why do you think Buddha is often portrayed as being somewhat heavy? You know, you see the, the, <laughs> the fat Buddha sitting, you know, when, yeah, when probably he wasn't heavy, but particularly like in, in the more Eastern countries, China, Japan, when the Buddha is portrayed, he's often portrayed as being quite pleasantly satiated with food. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, that, that's a that's a wonderful wonderful question, and I'm not sure that I that I really know the answer. But I've always thought of it as there is this base, unperturbed serenity that can be then expressed in the form of kind of rounded uh, shape of the uh, of the body. Right? It's kind of chubby, a chubby person. It doesn't. It fits less. And especially how he's portrayed as being chubby befits less somebody who is purely into hedonistic pleasure. It befits less somebody who is, uh, you know, stoically marching through uh, through life, notwithstanding the circumstances. There's a kind of uh, beautiful serenity that is uh, that that is describes. Uh, uh, that is expressed in the very way in which the Buddha is portrayed, and 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 this you know, and this is obviously this is not your book is not about Buddhism, but Buddha is one example among many in the book. But he, he he's very complex in that he very much does what he wants to do. So even when he goes back for his son six years later after after leaving, and you don't mention this part of the story in your book, but his wife and his father actually beg him. Do not take your son Rahula. Let him stay here. Yep. Get your material inheritance, your wealth, and become king. Do not, please, do not take him. And what does the Buddha do? And this is where your 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 book talks about. It. He thinks about what the word inheritance means, and he realizes his his true gift to his son is is to believe in the same beliefs he has of of the four noble truths. And so he basically takes Rahula with him, defying his wife that he hasn't seen in six years, and defying his father. And it's almost a little bit cruel, but his higher purpose is this, he kind of believes in this absolute truth of, you know, salvation of the soul is salvation of everyone really, which is very different from how other people might feel. Yeah, and I think you can give different examples from different traditions uh, in the same way. I mean, in Jewish tradition, think of Abraham uh, and his own leaving of his uh, home, uh, at least the way he's portrayed in the in the book of Genesis, or the story of near sacrifice of Isaac. Think of Jesus uh, uh, as well. There's kind of a severity in those teachings, which... I think it's bare reflecting upon. I personally, for for myself, think that a kind of such a fundamental reorientation in values that is embodied in all three of these examples, willingness to undergo this is fundamental for the stance that says, you know, my life is too precious to be squandered. My life is too precious for me to constantly also experiment uh, with it. Uh, I want to live my life in a way that I would be at one with the true purpose that I find for my life. And in order to do that, uh, you have to uh, kind of endure what should be at the beginning of the book, uh, say, a, a wreck for your life. This book might wreck your life, <laughs> right? It may detract you for a moment, uh, at least, uh, or permanently from the direction that you are taking. But in, and in a sense, you, your one of yourselves dies 
for another to be truly born and to be uh, lived in a way that uh, that you find yourself, not that somebody else imposes on you, that you find yourself to be truly in tune with your humanity. You know, it, it's so interesting because, again, there's like three perspectives. There's the perspective of yourself right now. Am I experiencing pleasure or not? And and you give good examples with with Oscar Wilde. Where so first, let me say that for a second. There, there's the perspective of you as a an individual experiencing pleasure. There's this perspective of you doing good for society. So that broadens out the picture a little bit. And then there's a perspective of you in terms of an ultimate truth about the universe or the world. And it's almost like the right questions to answer is where you fit in on all of those spectrums, those three spectrums: individual pleasure, societal correctness or goodness and or universal truth and it's almost like we have three levers where we can decide where we fit in on on all three of those spectrums to determine what our life would be worth living and those levers could be adjusted if i'm summarizing the book with an analogy I think that might be a helpful way to do it. We use it with the help of recipe, right? You have to put these different elements uh, and dimensions of, of the good life. You have to hold them together. We uh, express as well, you have to have recipe and not all ingredients are fitting to be part of the recipes. You can combine them, different ingredients, but some of them will, will just not fit the recipe at all. And therefore, you have to be conscious of how you adjust those uh, th those those elements you put it also very nicely in terms of levers uh, all three have to be in play but what would dominate and what would be subordinate might differ from person to person and as you earlier pointed out rightly it may differ for a particular single person in the course of their their lives yeah and, it, and it's worth bringing up the Oscar Wilde example from the book like early in his life, he pursued, maybe you can call it more hedonistic pleasure. I'm not, there's nothing wrong with that. He enjoyed it. And it, 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 it too is a life worth living. And then he kind of, as he grew older, he sort of morphed into maybe more silent pleasures, like, uh, like reading and thinking and, you know, things like that. So he, but he pursued mostly pleasure and happiness, which is nothing wrong with that. And, you know, in, in the case of Abraham Lincoln or Martin Luther King, it's more like, you know, a life worth living for them was maybe one filled with sacrifice. Like they were willing to give their lives essentially for some greater mm -hmm. societal good. And, and these are almost extreme examples. Like Lincoln and Martin Luther King literally gave their lives for a greater good in society. And, and Oscar Wilde, he risked jail and did face jail pursuing pleasure. And... Buddha and Jesus and those who followed, you know, his initial disciples basically gave up society in order to pursue what they felt was a life worth living. Yeah, I think some of those choices are, um, are kind of serendipitous. They happen in the course of life. Maybe, maybe that's what have to happened to Oscar Wilde uh, for a while, and he had to go undergo crisis in order to kind of recalibrate uh, himself. And some of them are a matter of, oh, that's okay. I I choose one rather than uh, rather than the other. Uh, because it, it, it's important to me now. But others, on the other hand, are not so much choices. I'm wondering whether when Oscar Wilde says, well, we, we kind of squandered, uh, I squandered my talent <laughs> in just uh, uh, kind of 
sheer hedonism, right? Uh, and you think, well, right. Uh, if I were Oscar Wilde, and now from perspective as a reader of him, I think, well, I wish he had a little bit fewer of these, so that uh, we as humanity can benefit from him, uh, from him much, much more. And the same thing could happen. Uh, could you would think about Martin Luther King? It's not. I suppose at some level you would say it's okay if he doesn't do what he's uh, what he's doing. But on the other hand, you say, well, it wouldn't have been okay. <laughs> the path that he chose, the calling that he chose, it's kind of exemplary for him, but it's also or it's it's characteristic of him, but it's also exemplary uh, for us. If we don't do in similar situation as Martin Luther King does, there's kind of something telling me I'm not quite living up to what I possibly could, and I might be failing in a significant way. You know, Is that too harsh? No, no, but it's interesting because ultimately all of these people had their successes and failures, but like take Gandhi that, you know, who Martin Luther King was greatly influenced by. Yeah. Was he a success? He freed India, quote unquote, freed India from from the British Empire. But the, the UK, the United Kingdom was slowly unraveling its empire anyway. And, you know, ultimately the, the India that came out of the UK, you know, was split by religious strife, ultimately split into three different countries. There was constant wars and battles. And, you know, they took a step backwards as a as a developing country for for a while. Now they're they're not now now they're accelerating very well. But you know, you could argue, was it worth it him pursuing a greater good? when he didn't fully know what would happen, even though his intentions were good. Yeah, and in in some ways, I think you point to very, very important uh, and element on unpredictability of life. And if you assess the value of life only against the backdrop of uh, consequences, you might as well be second-guessing yourself all the time what's kind of worth doing. I think many of the traditions would say the, the consequences might be important, but what uh, the, the, uh, you ought to pay attention to something more than just consequences of your uh, of your deeds. Indeed, some would say you can completely disregard consequences as a kind of moral, strictly uh, issue. And of course, that's another big philosophical, if you want, religious issue to debate uh, about. But it's important to keep it keep in mind, right? So that uh, one might say, even if he failed in terms of consequences, what he was aspiring to do and the kind of life that he le uh, led had its own integrity that merits deep honoring and identifying with and then might cause you to think, well, how should I assess my life? And it's interesting, too, that a lot of this is about creativity. Like you look at Oscar Wilde, Martin Luther King, Gandhi, Buddha, Jesus or his disciples, there's a certain creativity in sort of looking at the world and seeing, oh, things can be wildly different and that might be the life worth living. So take the disciples who you give as an example. I mean, mm. he wants to follow Jesus and he says to Jesus basically, hey, but first I got to just bury my, my dad who just died. And Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. And he's not just referring to father, right? He's metaphorically referring to everybody in, in traditional society is living a kind of walking dead sort of life, but pursuing your personal relationship with God immediately without 
doubt without hesitation is a life worth living. Like there's like Jesus basically underlines the immediacy of it. Like you can't even bury the dead. You gotta you know move now. I wonder, you know, it's this ability to be so open-minded, you can change your life completely as a way of moving forward. Uh, yeah, you, you, one might ask, very well ask, uh, whether that's a prudent thing to do. If my son came to me and asked me uh, that kind of a question, uh, you know, I do, wait, wait a second, even though I, slow down, even though I'm a Christian, I identify with this thing. <laughs> uh, and I would think, oh, uh, you know, wait, wait. Uh, but to me, it, it, it means also a, a kind of willingness not to be simply caught in the stream and follow what's around me. Uh, you mm. said, you articulate that in terms of creativity, in terms of being able to see your future self, the world's future self, so to speak, in a different way. And then this extraordinary thing as making a wager with your life in order to move in that uh, direction. Um, that in itself, that ability to do that, and the effects that some of the wagers of this sort have had upon humanity, to me is really actually extraordinary. I'll emphasize what you said earlier about the book, is that it's not necessarily, none of these stories are a recipe for how to live one's life. They're, they're just stories, and you have to, the individual has to sort of decide, but you know, so so no one suggests just give up everything and and let the dead bury the dead. But you know, I'll give a counterexample from the book. You talk about the Bhagavad Gita from Hinduism and Arjuna's discussion with Krishna on the battlefield. Ar Arjuna suddenly decides he doesn't want to kill his cousins, even though he's on the righteous side of a war and the cousins are on the bad side. But Krishna explains the concept of dharma like this is this is the right thing don't shirk now from what the right thing is what what your dharma is but then the flip side is you could argue peter his quote unquote dharma to use a hindu term to describe peter his dharma was to be a fisherman and to live that life and live a yep. good life that way the real critical thing is are you asking the right questions as opposed to are you changing your life radically I think I think that's right. And are you are you sufficiently informed uh, in when you are um, asking some of these uh, questions? Especially since we, I mean, in earlier times, um, the life was lived uh, in in certain kinds of grooves. Uh, traditional societies uh, you followed uh, followed in the footsteps of uh, uh, mainly your your parents. Uh, and it, under extraordinary circumstances, were you able to break out of those? We no longer live in such societies. Very mobile. Each of us is making our own decisions for for, for our lives, even though under constraint of many uh, forms of circumstances. And uh, in situations as we uh, modern folks uh, live, uh, you have to have at least some sense of what you are doing when you are making your 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 choices uh and for me it, it's a question do i just follow uh, my dream that i haven't sufficiently thought through uh and know whether it has weight uh, uh or do i step back and uh, at different points in my life uh 
take resources that I need and try to reflect about courses of life and then take courage to act in a way that is more in sync with not just my dream or desire, but something that has been informed more deeply that will let me avoid living a life that is too light. Uh, Milan Kundera's unbearable lightness of being, right? Uh, kind of that always skirts on, on some surface. It's kind of maybe even fun uh, and enjoyable, but ultimately uh, it's a foam and it's not a substance. I am so glad you convinced me that the family car should be the Defender 110. It is so beautiful inside. It's so comfortable and it just feels indestructible. Yes, it really is. I've been waiting a long time for the new model to come out. The Defender 110, I'm telling you, it's my favorite car of all times. It's my third one. You know, I have stories of going off road. The guy managed the group. He was like, what are you doing in this beautiful car? I'm like, I'm going off road. He's like, are you sure? Because you can use one of ours. And then they look like Mad Max cars. I'm like, no, 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 we're going to do this. And he was shocked. Wow. Well, it's great because the Defender has been reimagined for 21st century adventure and its unparalleled off-road ability as well as its robust interior are invaluable whether you're headed towards uncharted territory or just a weekend of exploration. The Defender 110 tackles challenging surroundings with absolute confidence. The SUV conveys strength outside and in, featuring peerless technology like an intuitive driver display and an award-winning infotainment system. That's my favorite part, to keep you connected no matter where the journey takes you. Adventure is unique to everyone, and so is the Defender. Choose from the two-door Defender 90, the four-door Defender 110, or the larger Defender 130 with the ability to seat up to eight passengers. You'll find uncompromising performance in all three. So pack up and go even further with the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like, I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I'm definitely going to use him from now Not on. that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMSS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hymns.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's hims.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. 
hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. In the unbearable lightness of being, just when the main character kind of deepens his relationships and including his relationship with himself and, and his life, that's when he dies. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so in some sense, Milan Kundera is, is saying that when you're willing to change, there's also potentially going to be consequences that are unknown and, and could be not what you want. But I think, I think, again, it leads to the fact that are you asking the right questions? And I think that's why mm. I love how you have this not quite homework, but these questions like, like for instance, and this one is from chapter one, uh, think back non-judgmentally over the last few days. You say, what questions have been on your mind? Write down your observations. And then you say, stepping back at what layer do you feel more, most comfortable? Where do you like to spend your time? Do any of the layers of reflection make you afraid? And I think that's very interesting. Like, cause why do you say, why do you want to know, or why do you ask yourself, does anything make you afraid? What does fear have to do with deciding if a path is worth living? Well, I think you need to articulate it so that you know that it's actually present and operating. Uh, and maybe the fear is wise uh, and is warning you against something that, that is true danger, but maybe fear is foolish and is preventing you from, uh, from taking the path that actually would be uh, more difficult, uh, maybe a, a bit scary, but much more uh, promising. And so I think this kind of taking stock of where I am in an honest way is important for the right decisions uh, to be made. And fears are, especially when it comes to decisions that mark our trajectories of our entire life, they're, they're understandable. I, now, when I when I think when I was when I was adolescent, I'm now 66, and I think back, and I, I should have been completely paralyzed by making a choice, the choices that I'm making, the, directing the arrow of my longing in particular uh, direction. Who knows what would have uh, happened? And yet, well, when you were young, what did you want to do when you grew up? <laughs> Oh well, when I was when I was young, pretty pretty early on, I wanted to be a philosopher and a theologian. So, which is what I became. But but I'm not sure that that when I was uh, that kid, if I were that kid uh, right now, not knowing what became of uh, of me, whether I would have uh, gone that that route, I could have never in million years imagined that I would be sitting at Yale. Uh, Teaching, uh, uh, teaching at a at a wonderful institution, uh, and yet I think I kind of admire my uh, adolescent self. It it was an unpopular thing to do, and I did it. And yeah, everybody wanted to be like a millionaire or a doctor or whatever. Or in my time, a theologian would have been worse. I was living in former Yugoslavia. Uh, where oh, yes, yeah, so it was against the law. <laughs> yeah, basically against the law. You, 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 you have doomed yourself to a kind of a meager existence uh, or maybe having to scrape your existence doing something else so that you can do the thing that you really, really enjoy. But, you know, the fear there for you was important because it's it's kind of 
move, moves the compass about what direction you should go. So like, obviously there's fear. You're going to live. Um, so on the one hand, you could not have fear and you could say, I can't do that. That's just not done in my society. Yeah, yeah. Or you could say, listen, this is what I want to do. But fear tells me I'm going to make a meager life and I might be, you know, doing something against the government's laws. The government was not in favor of religion at all. It was a communist government back then. And take Peter again as an example. He could have said to Jesus, I can't do that. I need to bury my father. But instead, it's a meta way of looking at it. Ah, oh, I notice I'm feeling fear. So why am I feeling that fear? Is it a constraint yeah. of society? Is it a constraint? Uh, is it really the case that I can't leave right now? Like, I think fear could be a meta way of breaking down what, what you initially thought was an immutable problem, but actually turns out to have a solution. Oh, there actually aren't, you know, it actually might be better for me to leave right now or, or for you, I need to move to America at some point and, and pursue this there because it's a better place to do it. And so fear really could direct you. Yeah, I, I think I think that's that's quite right. Uh, I I fully agree uh, agree with you. And then one can work through one's fear when one articulates them. One can also take. I mean, this kind of taking stock uh, of what what I do, how I spend time, for instance. I mean, one thing is for me to to, to think about what's in my mind, what what my desires are, and what my. Uh, dreams are it's another thing to say well let, let, let's let's sit down and see how i spend time uh let's sit down and decide where do i actually when left to my own devices where do i pour my energies and discover what actual desires uh and uh, proclivities are and then I can honor them. I can also say, you know, that's that's really not what i should be uh doing i've got to wake up how do i do that yeah, and 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 again, a lot of it is is questioning, like, you know, you, the questions that you have at the end of each chapter, you know, like for instance, right before part three, uh, there's a page of questions, and one of the questions is, how should we live? And so, you're basically saying, what ends should we seek through our agency? What standards should we be held to? And so on. So, so this is kind of more on the when your perspective is on the societal level, like, you know, what should we do? And what's our, our, or maybe not on the societal level, but what, what should we do to live a life worth living? But what, but what actions does that imply? Does that imply leaving life behind to reduce craving? Does that imply being an activist to make the world a better place? And, and so on. And these, again, are questions always worth asking. Like, and you point out a very kind of common example. Is it worth it to binge on Netflix TV shows? <laughs> and... On the one hand, it sounds trivial to binge on Netflix TV shows and nobody should do it because that might not be life worth living. But then I was thinking about it. I love TV shows and I love hearing stories and watching stories. Yeah. And for me, it's it's part of my life worth living, I think, although I guess I should always question it, is is watching stories. And, I, and that's what I love about watching TV. Yeah, and the question is also not whether one should ever binge on a particular series, uh, as I did uh, most recently uh, watching The Empress. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, if I haven't watched that one. I, I really liked it. Uh, it's only six uh, six episodes in this first uh, first season. It was pretty. pretty uh, I thought pretty good. That's barely a binge, by the way. I binged on Lost, <laughs> which is 120 episodes. <laughs> 
Well, it, it, but but in a sense, felt to me like like two evenings or something like that were completely claimed by this uh, by by this series, and I think it was a good use of my my time. I learned something. I enjoyed uh, the, the the story and the struggles that are being portrayed. Uh, so it's a matter of uh, what kinds of balance I find in in my life. Whether my is my life one one simple binging, right? That that may be a a, a really um, extreme way to ask that question, but but that that is, uh, I think, how some lives tend to be, uh, a kind of simply following the the kind of internal cravings, and some of those may be fantastic. And actually, as I mentioned earlier, the goal is actually for your cravings to fit the fit exactly the life as it ought to be lived, right? So that what you deeply desire is in sync with what you have found that you should be doing with your life. And maybe that's for you the case. Yeah, and and maybe, you know, and it's interesting, you start off the book talking about the question. Like you don't mm-hmm. say, this is the life worth living, but you, you're, again, using examples mm-hmm. and questions and you capitalize question, but I'll get to that in a second. It's really the how you pursue the questioning of a life worth living. And you give these stories to tell from his, history to tell how different people, characters ask these questions. But I like the fact that you capitalize question because for, for I never noticed this before, but the word quest is in question. And mm-hmm. I don't know if that was intentional by the creators of language, but yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, it is a quest. Like how, how one lives one life is a, is a quest. And, and, and it starts with the question of what am I pursuing? What is the goal of this quest? Is the question. And did you? Do you have, I I just noticed this for the first time on reading your book. Maybe because questions stood out because it was capitalized all the time. But did have you ever thought about that? Yeah. No. I, I we we did, and I think there is a there and there is a sense in which uh, our whole life is a, a quest. Right. Uh, we never we never fully get. Uh, to answer the question so that we can just pursue that uh, answer. We always also question how, even if we are set a direction for ourselves, how to live that in the here and, and the now. So that this type of, uh, if you want, reflective accompaniment of, of life by asking questions uh, and seeking answers is really fundamental to our life. You know, Socrates and his proverbial unexamined life is not worth uh, living. I think it applies if it doesn't mean simply let me analyze myself, right? Because that kind of life may may end up being trite, actually. But unexamined life is not worth living if you go in a particular direction without you examining where it is going, how are you getting there, and whether that befits who you are and who you are supposed to be. That doesn't turns out generally not to be life worth uh, living. Yeah, and you know, I, w- I want to ask some specific questions about some some words and phrases used. Like you describe the difference between friendship and companionship. And I thought that was a very interesting distinction. Do you want to describe? Yeah, it, it seems to me that friendship, at least as, as we, uh, as how we use it in in the book, it, it describes something much deeper, some kind of a shared uh, fundamental orientation uh, in an endeavor in which we uh, engage together. 
And I think for uh, the examination of our lives, for thinking about who we are and who we should be, it's this kinds of relationship to others that we need. Obviously, we can have many other kinds of relationship, but this is essential. Companionships can be can be much more uh, superficial. It can be fun, great thing to uh, to do, uh, but um, it's hard to pursue seriously uh, a vision of life worth living uh, if you're simply on your own. Uh, I think uh, we see ourselves and we see the world better in company of others. I think sometimes it's hard to find time, hard to keep that uh, time, hard to keep that commitment and companionships or friendship uh, rather with others is essential for that uh, for that uh, project. It's no accident that uh, uh, monastic com- communities were founded, or that uh, y- you know people gathered in synagogues uh, re- regularly, or that people went to churches and so forth. So that this kind of sense of belonging together and together exploring is essential. Right. So it's a it's a it's like like m- maybe I can also. Tell me if I'm describing the difference correctly. Like companionship might be two people who sit next to each other at a workplace, at a corporation. And so they might like each other and their questions that they have for each other is how can we do better work or enjoy work or, you know, be more effective at work. So they're sharing a more more simple question, whereas friendship, they're sharing the deeper question of are we are we both living a life worth living? Yeah. And yeah. how do we pursue I, I think, that? Yeah. Or, or they might go, the, the other companionship might be, I might go after work, I might have a drink and have really uh, good good time, which nothing against either of these two forms of companionship, but I think we need generally more, uh, and you describe it quite well, what that more might be. And then another thing that was really fascinating, like I I used to always... So, so you basically um, describe Pima Chodron's uh, use of the word regret. And it always used to be kind of, you know, when I was growing up and, and, and so on, everyone would say, oh, I have no regrets about how I live my life. And I realized for myself that I actually had lots of regrets. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I was relieved to see in your book what Pima Chodron said about regret, that that also almost could be like a, a compass to show you what direction you're going. Maybe, maybe you could describe the four steps of regret that she talks about. Uh, you know, I should I should reread those. Uh, I I can't. Uh, I know exactly what you <laughs> what you're talking about. Uh, do, do you know where the pa- I, yeah? I can, I'll, I'll I find can, it because then... you know I know what you mean. Yeah, like, yeah. I often have to reread my own <laughs> writing to remember to to remember the things I I, I wrote. Um, hold and, on, and some, I'll yeah. find it. And then um, yeah, here we go. Um, she says you're right. The, the elemental struggle she says, is with our feeling of being wrong, with our guilt and shame at what we are. And she says there are four factors. And first there's regret. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but then you say it's not wallowing in guilt, it's liberating. Because you admit that you're wrong and you're fine with that. You're not trying, you give up your self-defense mechanisms. And the second one is recognizing your personal failures for what they are. You refrain, but you refrain compassionately. You don't yell at yourself, yeah. oh, I can't believe I did that. Damn it! Why, yeah. why did I do yeah. that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then the third is you basically decide not to do it again. And basically, that's the third and the fourth: is you decide not 
to keep doing these errors and not to do them again. Yeah, so th that's one mode of of dealing with with failures uh, in variety of forms of um, failures, misopportunities, uh, or something like that in life. Yeah, different traditions have different ways of doing it. I, I think it's very helpful, especially not to let regret kind of hold you captive, but rather to kind of regret lightly enough that you can move positively forward. And, you know, in the Christian tradition, uh, there's a sense of re repentance. Uh, there's a sense of asking for um, apologizing to others. There's a sense if you've done something wrong to kind of restore that which you have, uh, which you have injured by that. And the sense of um, my own apology, my own regrets is already a first step towards something new. Because unless I recognize something as wrong, I can't turn away from it. So I, I think regrets are, 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 when properly handled, are very useful and important things because they confer value or they express that we value life as we have lived and therefore not want to have lived it in a kind of mindless uh, way or ways that hurt others or hurt ourselves. So regret uh, serves a very important function. And most of the traditions have a way of dealing with, uh, with a failure to achieve our intended way of life. And I like how she views regret. Like it's very important to have reg regrets compassionately. Like you don't yell at yourself like I shouldn't have done that, but you use it as a way to move closer to yourself by understanding, you know, or, or reframing these actions from the past. Yeah. You know, uh, I think when I talk, I, 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 in my, in, in different things that I do, uh, I often speak quite a bit about uh, forgiveness. It's one of the themes that I've, on which I've published. And when I speak, it's really interesting how attentive audiences become when you start talking about uh, forgiveness. And because we all have this experience, often we don't want to admit it, but deep down we all have experience of having failed and having not being able either to forgive or to be forgiven what we have done. And almost regularly I encounter the question, well, but what do I do when I can't forgive myself? And what do you say? So I, I respond as a Christian theologian, and in, in the uh, Christian Bible, in the New Testament, that there is a very interesting uh, line uh, which says, when your heart accuses you, know that God is greater than your heart. Mm. Meaning the God who mm. has forgiven you is greater than your heart. In some ways, there is a kind of uh, word that has been said over you and appreciation. You can make an analogy to somebody loves you completely irregardless of whether you have committed this deed, made that failure or, or not. And you can then get out of it into light with the help of just that love directed toward you. Since you're a Christian theologian, let, let me ask you a question from the New Testament about that. And so uh, there's the famous story in the New Testament, and correct me if I make any details wrong, but there's Jesus with the adulteress. So there's a, yeah. a, a woman that the crowd is about to stone, and Jesus basically sits in between them and the woman, in between the crowd that wants to kill this woman and the woman. And 
you know, he essentially says, anybody here who hasn't committed a single sin, you can throw the first stone. And then he just kind of ignores what's happening. And one by one, they leave because they've all committed a sin. And he himself says, I too can't throw the first stone. So he says to the woman, just go home and don't do it again. So do you think he is also saying that, you know, he has committed a sin, but he loves himself. And so he's forgiven himself. Like, what do you think he's saying about himself in that, in that story? Yeah, I, I, I don't think that the story is, uh, uh, he says, uh, uh, neither do I condemn you. Ah, okay. Uh, so he doesn't right? love, put himself in with the crowd. He doesn't put himself in with the crowd who would potentially who have come to uh, throw the stones. They cannot condemn you, but I will not condemn you either. So I think he puts himself uh, on the side of the mercy. Uh, and, and there's a part in this story where he writes uh, with his finger in the, on the ground. Yeah, and and it's mysterious. What was he writing uh, there? Whether there is any any sense in which we can divine that, and uh, there are all sorts of conjecture. What conjectures? Maybe he was writing their sins on the in, on the ground so that they couldn't throw that first stone uh, at her. And why do you think the author of that decided to include that detail and not say what he was writing? I have no idea. It has puzzled interpreters, and I think one interpretation is as good as as another because nobody knows. <laughs> and what do you think the Stoics, on the other hand, thought about regret? Since they were very much about living a life of virtue, if let's say there, there's something from their past that they disapproved of, how do you think they dealt with regret? I'd have to re refresh my my knowledge of uh, of stoicism, but uh, as emotion, I think this kind of negative emotion, just like fear or hope, my understanding is that they would want to simply diminish it as an emotion. You concentrate on on the presence. Fear and and hope are not something that you should worry about. Therefore, also what you, how you deal with the past, you would deal in a kind of analogous uh, analogous way. So it's almost like it's almost like both kind of solutions are worthy of following. But on one side, you have it's okay to have regrets, but just deal with yourself compassionately. And on the other hand, the Stoics or maybe Buddha, they're not saying don't have regrets, but just it's not important to dwell in it. You know, move forward, and from now, from this point onwards, live a life of, of virtue or live a life of contemplation or you know whatever your your faith is. Yeah, and you've got also maybe in the Christian and and I think if I understand correctly uh, some of the Jewish tradition uh, as well uh, that there is a kind of mercy there that uh, that you ought to have toward yourself and that God has uh, toward you. And since God's word counts, God's decision about your life is fundamental, then you can incorporate that mercy toward yourself into your own uh, life. Those would be some of the alternatives. What do you think about self-talk? Like, for instance, you indirectly refer to it in that section on regret where you say, you know, have compassion to yourself. Don't say in your head, I'm such an idiot. I did this, you know. So that's an example of negative self-talk. And that sort of sticks to us when we're constantly expressing hatred towards ourselves as opposed to compassion yeah. towards ourselves. Do you think there's a role for, for self-talk in, in how we live our lives? 
You know, may, may, maybe some. Self-talk is the mode of stepping, so to say, outside of oneself and looking at oneself and often scolding oneself, uh, right, for what, what one has done. There may be a, a positive element in, in that one identifies the, the, the wrong, right? But staying with this self-scolding uh, and constant uh, nagging at one, oneself seems to me uh, not really productive and not particularly useful. I think um, either the Buddhist or the Christian uh, way of dealing with it uh, is is much uh, m- much healthier. Either kind of letting letting the thing simply pass as something that that is past, as uh, often one is taught in Buddhist meditation to uh, to do, or recognizing. Uh, and separate yourself from that deed. You are greater than that deed. Uh, you yourself are more valuable and your entire life has not been defined by and ought not to be defined. You ought not to define your life by that wrong that you have committed. Uh, you are loved. Yeah, and, and, and also it's interesting looking at the, let's call it the more hedonistic approach, like Oscar Wilde regretted squandering his talent in the pursuit of pleasure we don't really know whether he hated himself for it or he loved himself for it, but he did use it as a formula for change. You know, yeah. when he got out of jail, he, you know, he probably still enjoyed the same pleasures, but kind of also shifted a little bit his his focus, and and so he used it as an agent of change inside of himself. So that's interesting, also. Yeah, or you can do. I think it's one of the options we we mentioned in the book also. Just forget about the past, concentrate on on future. You can do better. Yeah. You can try better. You can try harder. <laughs> you know, I, I the way I sort of, again, it seems like almost like a cliche to say, I don't have any regrets. And a lot of people say, it, oh, you know, if I regret anything from the past, I wouldn't have, be in the life I'm in today. But for myself, I know I had regrets because I have this weird thing where if I'm thinking something that I regret, I have a tendency to blurt out almost like a Tourette syndrome, I sort of blurt out a curse. And <laughs> my kids used to have their friends come over when they were little. And sometimes I'd just be sitting at my computer and I'd curse myself or say out loud a curse. And, and my kids would say to their friends, oh, daddy just does that sometimes. <laughs> Ignore him. And then I realized, oh, I do regret things. I can't say, oh, I don't regret anything. But anyway, you know, I really love the book. It's got me asking a lot of questions you know, and as you put it, you, you capitalize the, the cue in question. What is, you know, what is a life worth living? And the, and the book, of course, is called Life Worth Living, A Guide to What Matters Most. Uh, Miroslav Wolf, that's you, Matthew Krosman, and Ryan McNally-Linz are the three authors. Why does Yale have all these courses on happiness? There's that other woman, Lori Santos, who has <laughs> a course on happiness too, which is very popular. What's up with Yale and courses on happiness? Well, you know, th- there's a distinction between two of our courses of very friendly terms with Laurie, and Laurie has in- uh, um, endorsed the uh, yeah, endorsed she the, the back. Yeah, Laurie, Laurie is asking a very important question uh, that many of the uh, um, Yale uh, undergrads, but in uh, most colleges that I know, experience all the time. They find themselves uh, inadequate to the task of uh, living a life, a college uh, life, as many people find themselves in life more generally. And they need resources and helps how to get from point A to point B. You have another course uh, in Stanford course, Design Your Life. 
Uh, that's not from psychological standpoint, as Laurie does uh, her class, but from the standpoint of design. How do I design my life such that I can get from point A to point B? And I personally think both of these questions are really important. You have some to have some technical, quote-unquote, skills in order to live well. You have at the same time to have some psychological uh, skills, capacities in order to, to do so. My, uh, our of course, is different in that we don't ask the question, how do I get from point A to point B? We're asking the question, what point B is worth getting to? That's the central question of the whole of the whole book. Uh, they're not um, mutually exclusive alternatives. Uh, both need to be there. But we feel that in the larger conversation, both in, in the broader culture, and also in the university kinds of settings, that this question of the B, of what B is worth getting to, uh, has been neglected. And this book tries to elevate that question to the forefront of our attention. Well, I love the book. It got me really thinking about a lot of these questions. Also, I encourage people to, to look at the, the sections in each chapter where, you know, almost the homework, like, you asking these questions, so people just aren't passively reading. You have to answer these questions yourself as as the reader as you read this book. And it's it's very valuable book, such great stories, so many questions. It got me thinking and considering, you know. And I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and and answering my questions to you about about the book. But I also just love all the stories in the book and and the people you mentioned and, and so on. So we only touched a little on that, but it is really great stories. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. A wonderful podcast that you have, and it was just a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. 